0: Before we begin our Torah study, let's pray together. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. In this week's Torah portion, we read about the sabbatical year and we read about the Jubilee year These involve giving rest to the land and also rest to the people without deliberate farming. And also the Jubilee represents a time when those who were in indentured servitude would be set free even if they hadn't fulfilled the maximum term required for uh, the conditions of paying off their debt. And it's an interesting combination of law and grace that I want want to show you here. This was put into effect as a civil law within uh, the nation of Israel, but it was really a spiritual law that was at work. What's so fascinating is that it's a law that brought and reflected the grace of God. And I just wanna show you one little detail that comes up, if you will turn to Leviticus chapter 25, starting in verse 18. It says, so you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them, and you will dwell safely in the land. And then the land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. And if you say, now look at this question, what shall we eat in the seventh year, the sabbatical year? since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce. You see, every seventh year, they were to give the land a rest and do no deliberate farming. And the legitimate question is, what are we going to eat in that seventh year if we're not actually working the land? And this is the Lord's answer. Verse 21, I will command my blessing on you in the, what does your Bible say? Sixth year. Isn't that interesting? That's what I want you to think about and to reflect on with me. My blessing will be upon you in the sixth year, before you've taken the sabbatical year. You will have bounty, and look at what it says the bounty will be. It will bring forth produce enough for three years. Enough for the sixth year, of course, because you need that, like every year. Enough for the seventh year when you're not doing any deliberate farming, and enough for the eighth year until the new crops come in from the farming of that year. Three years of blessing come in the sixth year. Now what I love about that is that the provision comes before you actually do the thing, showing that it's the grace of God at work. Do you see that? And also showing how grace can be released in our lives. It's released when we activate our faith. When we put our trust in God and we decide to be faithful to him, when you set out to do it, often it's enough to begin to release things. I also love the fact that that God is ready to deal with questions. Jewish people need this. I think other nations do too. Do Italians ask questions? (laughs) Why? How? How can this be? And God, I think, is saying when you're asking a normal question, he's ready to respond. Now, understand this. If your question is just a uh, masquerade for no, I'm not going to do it, then don't think you'll get a good answer. I remember when our kids were young and, and we'd ask them to do something. If they said why, I had to listen very carefully because if what they needed is some further understanding, I was willing to give it. But if why was really their way of saying, no, I'm not going to do it, I wouldn't give them any further instruction other than do it. So God is taking us seriously. How would we actually survive If we were to do this thing and the Lord says, I'll take care of you. He has already demonstrated that he's capable of giving a double portion. Remember when the children of Israel were going through the wilderness. They are during this time that Leviticus is written. They're going through the wilderness and God is providing for them with manna. And every day they're to gather up a day's worth except on... What day? No, on Friday. You gather up twice the portion for the Shabbat. So on Friday, you gather up a double portion. Now on all the other days when you gather up what you do, it's only good for one day. But on Friday, when you gather that portion up, it's actually good for Friday and good for Shabbat. Isn't that amazing? Now, of course, you could say, well, that's impossible. No, it's just really hard. It's really hard for you to do it. It's really hard for me to do it. But it's not that difficult for God to do it. Is anything too difficult for God? Oh, I love to read about the Big Bang. The Big Bang Theory of of Creation. And I'll tell you why I love to read about it. It's because it reveals that all scientists have to believe in miracles. Because something comes out of nothing. And there is only one in the universe who can create out of nothing, and that is God. God calls things that are not as though they were. And he speaks and things come to pass. And so the idea that we can go all the way back, however far you want to go, and right before that moment there was nothing and then there was something, that reveals that the Big Bang is sort of built on this idea that God can create out of nothing. Because you know, nothing can't create. Are you aware of that? You can prove it every day. Draw your checkbook down to zero. And just wait and watch and don't do anything and see if that nothing in your checkbook can turn into something. It won't, unless you put more into it from outside. It turns out that God is able to inject energy into the universe at his will. He is able, when he decides, to put new energy into the universe. I'm looking forward to the day when scientists discovered that. Uh, that scientific principle, they need to be looking carefully for it in order to discover it. Well, I love this passage in Leviticus because it speaks of the grace of God being intertwined with the law of God, and it shows us something that, that mercy is at the heart of God, and provision is at his heart because he's a God of love and a God of compassion who cares about us and wants to take care of us. In this, in this week's Torah portion as well, there are some provocative things, and I want to introduce you to just one of them in chapter 26, starting in verse nine. This first part of the chapter is wonderful because it talks about the blessings that come by walking in faith with God. But let's just pick up in verse nine. I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. And you will eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. This is just the beautiful way of describing that three-year abundance. I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And then verse 12, I love this because of what it says in the most simple of ways, and I believe it's a prophetic description, and meant to be understood uh, as Peshat, as the simple, literal text. I will walk among you, and be your God, and you shall be my people. I will walk among you. God himself is saying, I will walk among you. Now, according to, the british harashah god has already done this he came down from heaven he took on a human body not just uh, a big glorious body he took on the body of a baby and he grew in the womb of his mother miriam and he was born in a human way uh, from that womb and then he lived a human life and yet it was god inside of a human body and he walked among us. This is powerful because it forces us to confront our own theology. Do we believe it's possible for God to walk among us? Moses believed it. You know why I say that? Because Moses wrote this. If he didn't believe it, I don't think he would have passed it on. God used him to pass on this text because Moses experienced God in such a way that he knew this was something that God could do. In the book of Genesis, it says that God walked on the face of the earth, and Adam heard the sound of God walking. Now, you can form a theology that says that's impossible, and you know what you have to do then? You have to start marking things out of the Bible and say, well, I can't really believe that God Can do that. And when you say God can't do it, you're basically putting God in a box in your box. And he's trying to get you to see how glorious he is and how powerful he is, how he works, how he operates, and what limits him and what doesn't limit him. He chooses to reveal certain things so that you can get a hold of them and then let them reshape your thinking. Of course you can come across something like this and say well this is just an anthropomorphism it's just the language of men so that you can understand it well I don't think there's any reason why that's necessary I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people he's trying to say something I will walk among you if you tell someone I'm going to go for a walk with you would you know what that meant would they understand it I think so So when God says, I'm going to walk with you, he is meaning that. And this is provocative. I love the way that the scriptures can provoke us to rethink and to think through things. We've learned things about God. We've learned religious principles. But not everything that we learned actually is consistent with what God wants us to understand from the scriptures. So what's the great safety? The great safety is going back to the Scriptures, and being strong in the Scriptures, trusting the Lord who reveals himself to us through the Scriptures, and as well by the Holy Spirit. Now, God sometimes works in upside-down ways. Sometimes he doesn't do things the way we think he should, or we think are necessary. And every time you're praying to God, why?, that may be a sign that you think he should be working differently. Do you remember when he took the children of Israel out of Egypt and he said, I'm not gonna take you by the shortest route. I'm gonna take you the long way around. How many of you have ever had to go the long way around something? Because God was leading you. Now there's another way you can go the long way around and that's because you just, you just keep going in circles because you're not being led by the Lord. But there are times when God knows he can't take you from point A to point B on a direct route. He needs to take you another circuit in order to protect you, prepare you, or for things to be ready and at just the right time. And I want to introduce to you a great Hebrew word that that you'll be able to use for the rest of your life, I think. this is a word that Sandy and I learned in Jerusalem one morning. We were having breakfast at a cafe, and Sandy won't re- probably remember these details until I tell you, Emek-Refaim Street. Do you remember? In the German colony. Were we staying at that apartment on Hamagid? hmm you do remember. You, you got a sharper mind than me. I'm cheating because I looked up the cafe. On, on Google Maps, and I zoomed in until I could see the sign. It's still there, because this cafe is like a Jerusalem institution. It's a dairy restaurant, which means they serve uh, dairy dishes and fish. They don't serve you know, four-legged meat and uh, flying fowl food. We were staying in an apartment nearby Uh, because we preferred to do that rather than staying in hotels. And we went there for breakfast, and we wanted a cappuccino. And this was er in the early 90s, when uh, not every place that served coffee served cappuccino. And the waitress, if I remember right, didn't know the word cappuccino. And so Sandy was describing what it was, and she said, ah, (laughs) cafe and. We said, well, what does that mean? She said, hafuch, uh, upside down. You see, the way they make cappuccino is they take hot milk and foam, they put that in the cup first, and then they pour shots of espresso in it. So it's upside down, not cappuccino. I think today you could order a cappuccino and get it. But if If you want to order it the way they'd understand it, you order cafe hafuch. It's a great word, isn't it? Okay, so I want you to practice, you need to say it very carefully, hafuch. That's good, okay, smile at someone and practice with them, hafuch, hafuch. (laughs) And it's from a root that uh, is hafach, but I like hafuch in that particular form. I think it's just so great. So hafuch means upside down. We love to order cafe hafuch. And sometimes, just for fun, we'll look at each other and say hafuch. (laughs) Years later. It's a great word. It can mean upside down, but it can also mean inside out or flipped or overturned. It it comes from that root hafuch. Uh, And I I want to give you some examples of how God works Uh, in a hafuch way, because it will help you. You may be in a situation, and you can't see how it's gonna turn out, and you may think that because you can't see how it's gonna turn out, that it won't turn out well. But I wanna show some examples to you, some good hafuch examples. This is just like the people who said, how could it possibly be that if we don't farm, we will prosper? You see, that's upside down, wouldn't you say? Okay, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 5. We're going to look at a few different verses, so if you brought your Bibles, that's good. And I want to ask you, bring your Bibles next week because you will need to use them in order to participate in the study we're going to do. Deuteronomy 23, verse 5. Every year we study and learn about uh, the false prophet Balaam, Balaam, And he was a guy, just as background, who who was prophetic in some way. He was hired by the enemies of Israel to curse Israel so that the enemies then could go into, uh, into war against Israel and defeat them in their weakened state. Balaam agreed to curse Israel, but every time he tried to curse Israel, you know what happened? Blessings came out. And the people who hired him were really upset. We're paying you to curse them. And you're blessing them. And Deuteronomy 23, verse 5, describes what happened. The Lord your God would not listen to Balan, but turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. And where it says turned the curse, it uses a form of the word hafuch. And so, you know what that means? He turned it upside down. The enemy of Israel wanted to curse, and yet God turned it upside down and used those very efforts to bring blessing to Israel. That is so great to me, because it shows us that we don't have to depend on normal weapons of warfare in spiritual situations. God is able to do things that are great. We don't have to use the same kinds of uh, things that the enemy is using against us. You see, the enemy was using what? Curses. So we don't have to respond to curses with curses. We can work a different way. God hafog, he overturned the curse, he turned it upside down, he flipped the curse. He turns things upside down sometimes. Now, there's an interesting event in the life of Saul, who was called to be king. It's described in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Sandy's been studying and praying about this passage for some time and seeing a lot of interesting things in it, but I came across this interesting verse in 1 Samuel 10, verse six, it's a prophetic word given to Saul. And it tells him where to go and when to go and and what will happen to him. Verse six says this, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. And where it says changed It uses a form of the word hafuch. You'll be turned upside down. You see, sometimes we need to be turned upside down in order to be turned right side up. We think it's our natural abilities. We think it's our natural gifts that are gonna get us uh, ahead and cause us to be successful. But in this case, it wasn't Saul's natural abilities that were going to be the basis of success it would require a spiritual transformation that turns him upside down. And he would have to learn to rely on the Holy Spirit. Now you can look at his life and you see something. The grace of God was poured out so that he could rely on the Holy Spirit, but did he rely on the Holy Spirit? No, there were moments when he deliberately made decisions to go against the instruction of the Holy Spirit, and it didn't go well for him. Now let's go to Jonah, chapter three, verse four. This is, a, this is a great passage. Just as background, let me remind you about some things about Jonah. He was a Jewish prophet. He was sent to Nineveh, which is not a Jewish city. He didn't really want to go. He didn't really want to be a prophet But when he was finally given the assignment or he accepted the assignment, he he agreed to do it because basically it meant announcing to Nineveh that it was going to be destroyed. That's how he understood it. And he thought, okay, good, let them be destroyed. So it says in Jonah 3, 4, on the day that Jonah entered the city of Nineveh, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's how some translations Have it what does your translation say overthrown that's good well you know what the word is it's a variation of hafuch. it's going to be turned upside down now what what Jonah was hoping is it be overthrown in the sense of being destroyed judged by God for its sin he was all in favor of that you see some people are more in favor of the bad news than the good news and they misunderstand the grace of God and where it's headed You see, God wants that no one would perish. And so he makes a way for everyone who would turn to turn. But that doesn't mean everyone will turn. Jonah was okay with the idea that Nineveh would perish. He didn't really care for Nineveh. A lot of us have the same kinds of attitudes when it comes to people who don't like us, hate us, or oppose us. We would rather see them Overthrown, destroyed. Well, it turns out that the prophetic word had some double meaning to it. Nineveh is going to be turned upside down. Now, it's going to be turned upside down one of two ways. One way, if Nineveh repents, because it will be turned upside down, because now it's going to start serving the God of Israel. Or it's going to be turned upside down another way, which is it continues. In its hostility towards God, its enmity with God, and it will be destroyed. Do you know nations sometimes come to that point? It's a point of, of a crisis, really a turning point where their future is no longer secure and they can no longer be certain that they will continue as a nation. God brings nations to that point, And if they don't turn, they just disappear. And he arranges, so he arranges the world so that those nations become ancient history one day. They become part of the past and not part of the present or future. So 40 days from now, Nineveh is gonna be turned upside down. Do you remember Jonah's reaction when Nineveh repented? Did he say, hallelujah, God is good? Did he say, oh, the grace of God is so strong and powerful and God used me, I'm so glad. You know what, he sat in misery and thought, what a waste. And that tells you something. Even when the grace of God is released through you, you have to learn to rejoice in his grace being shown to other people. You know, as I do, that each of us has had moments of stress and difficulty where we hope someone who is opposed to us won't do well. And then we hear of some blessing in their life, and we struggle with it. And I know many people who have the opposite uh, form of it when, when someone who's against them experiences trouble, sickness, a loss of a job, a setback of some sort. So many people say, well, that happened because this person did this to me. But they usually don't say, did this to me. They say, went against God. And so they are rejoicing in a sense in the judgment of God rather than the mercy of God. And we have to learn how to have a different point of view because God sees things differently than we do. And he will get a hold of situations that aren't necessarily good, but he'll use them in a way that we could never imagine to bring good out of them. And here's an example. We'll go to back to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is the story of Joseph and all of these passages that we're looking at do require that you be familiar somewhat with the scriptures and the basic text of the scriptures, and so if you're unfamiliar with with the story of Jonah, you're unfamiliar with the life of Jonah, the story of Balaam, you know what that says? You've got some studying to do, some reading to do to become familiar. At the very least, you should make it an important goal to read the whole Bible so that you're familiar with the whole Bible itself. And you can say, I've read everything that's in the Bible. And then it's good as well to read slowly and to study the scriptures so that you can can learn in a deeper way from them. Genesis chapter 50 describes something that Joseph said to his brothers. And Joseph, if you remember, was one of the sons of Israel. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. And he ended up in Egypt He was a slave in Egypt, a servant without any rights, and then he was falsely accused by his master's wife and ended up being thrown into prison. It was an act of injustice, but while he was in prison, he handled everything so carefully and with God's wisdom that even the warden knew that he was blessed by God and, and turned responsibilities over to Joseph. Somehow, from prison, Joseph ends up interpreting a dream for the pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and as a result of that, the king of Egypt appoints him prime minister. Isn't that incredible? So this, is, this explains a lot of politicians have thought, well, the way, the way to get ahead is to go to jail. No, that's not... <laughs> Now, I want, you to th- I want you to put yourself in Joseph's shoes for just a minute and imagine that if he thought, if he thought because of injustice, because of the way his siblings had treated him, that his life was over. What if he just said, you know what? My life is ruined. It's over. The future is gone. My hopes are shattered Imagine if the disappointment of the evil that had been done against him was the ruling force in his life and was the major way by which he interpreted all things. What if he just said life is a waste of time, it's meaningless, there's no value in it? Where is God anyway that these things would happen? God of justice, right, right? then why am I a slave? God of justice, I don't believe it, why am I in jail? I stood up for things that were right and look what happened to me. People do think that way. And when they think that way, they miss the presence of God with them in their current circumstances. Joseph is a great example of how a person can think a different way and invite God to be present with them. In fact, it said that Potiphar, his master, and then the warden of the prison saw that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him and that the Lord was blessing everything that he did. Now, most of us would not think the Lord's with us us if we're sold into slavery. We would automatically say, God's abandoned me. But Joseph didn't have that view. He shows us something. Now during this time of separation from his family and this time where his dreams could not possibly be fulfilled, God was present with Joseph and Joseph was faithful to God and was worshiping the Lord and serving the Lord and he was living his life with purpose where he was. He wasn't waiting for things to get better before he started living with meaning and purpose and dedication. He served as if every moment counted. He used his life as if even though he was a prisoner, he was still free. And when his brothers end up in front of him looking to buy food, he knows who they are. They don't know who he is. He's speaking to them in Egyptian. He has an interpreter. He's wearing Egyptian clothes, has an Egyptian haircut. He is the prime minister. He's not dressing like the prime minister. He is the prime minister of Egypt, and they are before him And he's overtaken, you remember the story, he's overtaken with emotion at a certain point. He sends all the Egyptians out of uh, his court, out of the chamber that they're in, and he, he wails and then he just says, in Hebrew, I am Joseph, your brother. His brothers are in shock. This is bad news. This is the worst of all situations for them. They don't have food, they're trying to buy food, they brought money, and uh, whose mercy are they at right now? And just to make it clear, he says, I'm Joseph whom you sold into slavery. In case you were saying, whatever happened to that Joseph? Or you know how people can believe their own lies? They say it for so long that they actually believe it's true? You know, Joseph died. It must have been a wild animal that killed him. We saw the blood on his his robe. We gave it to Dad. Oh, we thought you were dead. You didn't think I was dead. You're the one who sold me into slavery. He just preempted all of that denial and said, I'm Joseph, your brother. And then he said that they shouldn't hate themselves. And of course, a lot of us, if we said, you shouldn't hate yourselves because I hate you enough, but that wasn't the case you shouldn't hate yourselves because god was at work and look at verse 20 genesis 50 verse 20 even though you planned evil against me i love this he recognizes it was evil that was done even though you planned evil against me god planned good to come out of it joseph never says it was good what you did He said it was evil what you did and what you planned to accomplish. But God got a hold of it and he turned it upside down. Now this passage doesn't use hafuch, but it uses the same concept, the same principle. That God is able to take things that are done for one purpose that's against God and he can turn it upside down, which makes it right side up. Someone wants to curse, he turns it into a blessing. God is able to work in surprising ways. He says, God planned good to come out of it. This was to keep many people alive as he is doing now. You see, God often works in upside down ways. Let the land have a rest. It will be more productive. Give the property back that you bought from other tribes and let it go back to its original owner in the 50th year and you know what? The whole nation will prosper. These things are upside down. They don't don't fit into our normal thinking. But God loves to do that. When he takes the youngest brother, not the eldest brother, and uses him, it's hafuk, it's upside down. When he takes Ruth, a Gentile, from, from Moab, and uses her to bring forth the line of King David, from whom comes Messiah. It's hafuch, it's upside down. When he uses Israel, a slave nation in Egypt, and sets Israel free and brings them into a land and gives it to them, it's upside down. And when he comes down to earth, takes on a human body in order to become Melech Mashiach, King Messiah. It's upside down. You see, God loves to work in upside down ways. Now you see another picture of hafuch in this week's Haftor portion in Jeremiah. God has told Jeremiah that Israel is going to be taken captive, it's going to be invaded, defeated, enslaved, and then taken into exile. And then God says to Jeremiah, you're a kinsman redeemer. I want you to buy some property that belongs to your family. Buy it back now. So I I want you to compare the economic wisdom of this. It would be like God knowing that the real estate bubble is about to burst. And he says, put all your money in houses. Do you see how crazy that is? Why would you do that? Why would would you buy land when you're going to be hauled away into exile? So let's look at it. Jeremiah 32, verse six. Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you saying, buy my field which is in Anatot because the right of redemption is yours to buy it. And then, verse 8, Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, please buy my field that is in Anatot, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption yours, buy it for yourself. And then I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field. Now, was this smart in terms of economics, Nobody should buy right before the bubble bursts. Then verse 13, we'll skip down. Then I charge Baruch before them saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both the purchase deed which is sealed and the deed which is open, put them in an earthen vessel that they may last many days. In other words, I just put good money into this property put this in an earthen vessel, we want to keep it in storage for later. And then you ask, why would he even do this? And verse 15 explains, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. You see, Jeremiah was called not only to proclaim a message of redemption, but to act on it and to be a demonstration of it. That there are times when you have to take a position before it looks like it's real, but you know it is real because God himself has spoken and has guaranteed it. God made a promise to Jeremiah and said, this time, This time that you're facing now, this time of trouble for Israel, it's for a purpose, because God works in upside-down ways. He'll use that time of severe judgment, if you will, in order to reveal his mercies. And the Lord is saying something. Redemption has already been accomplished. It will be visible, however, only in in the future. You see, the same thing is true with your redemption. Yeshua has accomplished a redemption for you. It's already accomplished. It may not be visible in every way, in every detail to you now, but it is real. God sometimes turns things upside down by working like that. But when he turns it upside down, it's actually putting it right side up. It looks Upside down because it's been flipped. But from God's perspective, that's what it takes to put things right. Now, I know some of you are in situations that don't seem right to you. Maybe someone's planned evil against you, maybe someone has actually accomplished evil plans against you, maybe some fiery darts have been shot at you. I want you to remember what you're made of and remember who your God is and remember this word hafuch, upside down. He will overturn, he will turn upside down. He'll flip those evil plans and he'll find a way to bring something good into your life. Now when God spoke to Jeremiah to do all of these things, Jeremiah responded with faith. Jeremiah 32 verse 17. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and by thy outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee. He goes on, great and mighty God, great in counsel, and mighty indeed. I love the song, old song. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing is too difficult for thee. What is too difficult for God? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. Nothing, Absolutely nothing is too difficult for God. God can get his hands on those broken things of this world, the broken things of your life. He can turn them upside down and fix them that way. The crucifixion of Yeshua was just like that. It looked like defeat. It looked like the enemy won. But God was working hafuch. Death did not have the last word. Sin did not have the last word. God had the last word. Here's the problem. We don't always know what upside down really is. Often things are already upside down. They look right to us because that's the way they are and we're familiar with it. And then God gets his hands on those things. He turns them upside down, which is putting them right side up. And we're going, what happened here? And you see something about the power of God. When God gets a hold of you and brings you into his kingdom, it may turn your world upside down. It turned mine upside down. How many, of you, how many of you can identify with that? You had plans. You had, you had ideas about what your life was going to be. And you came to God, and he smiled and said, okay, let's do it my way. And you found yourself in a different path than you were choosing for yourself. I just want to encourage you, stay on that path. Don't go back the way you came. Don't do what Saul did, getting filled with the Holy Spirit and then reverting to his natural abilities and his natural disabilities and independence. When God gets a hold of you, let him keep his hands on you. Let him boss you around. Let him be boss. If if your soul right now is going, okay, just rebuke that spirit (laughs) in you. (laughs) Let it go. If you're struggling and God's already got a hold of you just Just calm yourself down in his presence and say, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. Thy will. And I tell you what, God will get a hold of the things of your life. He'll turn them for good. You don't have to call evil good. Don't call good evil. But know this, even if other people have put you in harm's way, God knows how to turn good into your life, how to bring good into your life. You set your heart on that. That's one of the lessons from the sabbatical year. Set your heart on doing it, doing the will of God, and in anticipation of that, the favor of God is released. In the sixth year, triple blessing. Anybody here taking some fiery darts recently? I want to pray for everybody who's taken some. I know quite a few of you have, but feel free to stand up if you've taken some fiery darts. You know, there's a way you know you are taking a fiery dart. It hurts. Something hits you and it hurts, and then it starts burning. We used to joke about it sometimes. We'd say, I smell something burning. It's me. My flesh is burning. Fiery darts. Sometimes when they're being sent our way, we try to run away from them. Here's the problem. The one firing them will chase us. So what do you do? (laughs) Chazak v'amatz. Be strong and courageous. Take your stand, position yourself, And then don't rely on the weapons of this world. Rely on the spiritual weapons God has given you, the shield of faith. You know what it does? It extinguishes the fiery darts. You hold up that shield of faith. I got a call from a rabbi the other day, Messianic rabbi, taking a lot of fiery darts and a lot of of pain, and his wife as well. And after we talked, I said, can I pray for you? And I said, Lord, just Just lift up that shield of faith. We know that shield of faith extinguishes these fiery darts. You are Magain Avraham, the shield of Abraham, and you are the the shield for each one of us. And those fiery darts get extinguished when they come into contact with your shield. I was praying for him, you know what? The darts started going out. You don't have to rely on your own strength. Lord, we thank you for the shield of faith. And we stand strong right now. And we say, Lord, you are our strength. You are our shield. And you are our great reward. We lift up that shield of faith now. We say, Lord, you're our protection. You're the one who can turn things hafuch, upside down to make them work for us. You used little David against great Goliath. You used Ruth, forbidden to the Jews, in order to bring forth the Jewish Messiah. You work in incredible ways. Thank you, Lord, for faith that comes to us by your grace and mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you're a God who is faithful and we can trust you. Lord, we trust our souls to you. We know you do not abhor us. You love us. Lord, I pray now in the name of Yeshua that this shield of faith would do its work extinguishing fiery darts. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. Congregation, I have to tell you an experience I had this morning that led me to this I was preparing, everything was fine, perfectly normal. I felt great, had a good night's sleep. I was rested, and I felt the Lord said, chazak v'amatz," And so I thought, okay, well, we'll do that. Be strong and courageous, And and I started saying, well, Lord, I know people need courage. You know what happened for the rest of the morning? Fear came on me, and it was so weird, and I was physically unsettled. I was physically disturbed. Some of you can relate to this. You know what I'm talking about when you have that feeling. And it was like I was in a terrifying situation. The only problem was I wasn't, but I was. And you know what I almost decided to do? I'm not going to... I'm not gonna do this Chazak Vamat stuff. I just don't feel like it today. Maybe next week when I feel better. And you know what? I was taking a shower and I thought, holy smokes, it's a battle. And I'm in it. I'm in it. Do you know, just to bring the word of the Lord, you gotta fight. And so I just started saying, Lord, you're my shield. Give me your courage. Eventually, it went back to normal as I did that. But I had to say, I will fight using spiritual weapons, not natural weapons. I will not give up. And I think the Lord gave that experience to me so that I would know some of what some of you are going through too. And so that you would know that God knows, because what I described you can relate to. How many of you can relate to that physical feeling? Raise raise your hand up. Okay, do you see? Now, this is what I want you to know. God knows what you're going through, and he understands. Thank you, Lord, for your compassion. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you came down and took on human flesh so that you could know. Your love is so strong for us. Your protection is so great for us, Lord. We trust you. We look to you to protect us. We need the weapons, Lord, that you've given us. Not natural weapons, not carnal weapons, but spiritual weapons that can defend us and pull down strongholds. The weapons that come from from you and the power of your might. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray that we could be those people who trust in you and who begin to overflow with hope as we're trusting in you, as Paul said. That we could find your mercy, your protection, your goodness in the land of the living. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your strength. And thank you for your courage. And for your instruction. Do not be afraid or dismayed because I go with you wherever you go. Thank you for that, Lord. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's close with Aaron's blessing and remember, remember if you've got kids, pick them up. And if they go outside, keep them up. But we also have an oneg, you can join us for for bagels and some baked goods. Uh, And so I wanna encourage you to move into the flex room, pick some things up to eat, and then I wanna ask you to do something else. Volunteer to help clean up. Because soon we'll be using a combination of volunteers and draftees. If everyone volunteers, we won't need to draft anyone, but we will draft until everyone has participated. <laughs> but we, we have a great time of fellowship, and I'm going to ask you to, to let me go in there, and you can meet me in there instead of here. And we have the membership class. And we have the membership class at 1.30. That's right. Thank you.